Loving God, we do take comfort in knowing that you know all of our experiences in life. You know us in moments of exhilaration, of excitement, of joy, moments of stillness, of tiredness, of awareness of our weakness and frailties. Lord, help us to see the way in which you at work for all the different moments, moods and seasons of our lives and of your people. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, For the benefit of our our guests amongst us, uh, we've been, over the last about three months, been looking at a series of Seeking Spiritual Renewal and Revival. and We've been looking right across the, the whole biblical landscape, the whole biblical narrative around different moments and different times in which God provides renewal and revival. And we've just got a couple more weeks to go this week and next week on this particular theme. We will revisit it again in the new year. But I want to focus on those moments which are both something we can, or many of us, experience and can identify with, as well as the broader understanding of the realities of life and how the Bible speaks into those realities. And that's times of weariness, times of burnout, when we just feel spent. One of the realities that we do, um, that is named in Scripture, are those moments when we feel let down, where it's let down by others, let down by our hopes and expectations, or even asking those questions as to where is God in the midst of these moments. The Bible never gives any assurance that become a Christian, follow God, and everything's going to come together. It's onwards and upwards. It's just one triumph after another. The Bible names the greater realities that... We're not kept immune from the realities of life, whether it be physical injuries, whether it be emotional or mental illness and struggles. They are the realities that come with life, more so to some than others, and God is present in and through all those seasons. If there was some magic wand that could be waved over when we become a believer that protects us from all these things, that would be... I suspect the wrong motivation to come to faith because it will be all about me, what my benefits and gains come. In fact, it's in and through those moments of weariness, of weariness, of of just how we are frail and we do age and we do succumb to illnesses and things can occur to us that weren't part of our five-year plan but become realities that we need to work with. And it's often in those moments that we learn more about ourselves and about life and about what it is to retain faith and recognise God's presence in those moments. There are a a whole variety of uh, words that we are all too familiar with. You mightn't have the entire set. It's not a game of bingo that you have to call out if you can have the whole lot. But fatigue, that comes after times of energy, times of uh, even adventure or exhilaration, times of feeling weakness, stress, burnout, 
in a times of depression and sleeplessness and all the different qualities that we know all too well. This is a reality of life and one in which the Bible doesn't ignore. One of the things that really strikes me about Scripture is its almost brutal reality. The first reading in, uh, of uh, Elijah, as we'll come to in a minute, is set against a very grim world. We forget sometimes that the world of the Old Testament, the ancient Near East, was a brutal, violent world. I know some have raised questions recently when we looked at the question about the, uh, the people of Israel entering into the promised land, and isn't that an invasion? Something that we are uh, familiar, the language of invasion in our own context. But actually, when we think about it, the Hebrews who were travelling were refugees. They had come out of slavery, they were displaced people seeking to find a land, and the people there were not willing to share the land with them. Suddenly that narrative is also familiar, but it flips our sense of where our loyalties might lie. This great body of refugees travelling through a desert, desiring to be able to share waterholes and have some space where they can create a home. And surely there's enough land to go around to share that land. So some of those brutal battles that occur, occurred because of people saying, you may not come anywhere near us. We are the power in this area. And God's saying, I want this people to come into that land. And it wasn't to wipe out the others. It was to coexist in that land. When it comes to the story of Elijah that we come to, we can recognize, oh, that was just my fun graphic to say, which of those matches do you relate to? That could be a fun conversation starter, you know. Which of those matches is you? But that's part of the experiences we go through. Now, in one sense, the dramatic story of Elijah uh, confronting the other prophets on Mount Carmel and the, uh, uh, the, the mocking that, you know, Elijah says, you know, could one, your gods, your powers to bring down fire and light this, uh, this um, sacrifice and their failure to do so. And Elijah went back and said, well, maybe your gods are asleep. Go out louder, louder. Maybe you can wake them up. Still nothing happens. And then, of course, you know the story how Elijah's turn. He even puts water around it and then calls upon the God of Elijah. And this spectacular fire comes. That's a dramatic story. But we need to remember that these were times and these were moments of genocide. These were moments when Ahab and under Jezebel and others were seeking to violently remove a whole people, to eradicate them. So it wasn't just a, a you know, spectacular competition in, uh, in, in equal terms. This was a battle for survival in that space. And when even though Elijah demonstrated the power of his God, was demonstrated powerfully through the, uh, the act of uh, the, the fire and all that came. Still, the battle continued. The revengeance came. And it was awful. And Elijah fled. Elijah fed, fled to a, 
a cave. He huddled a cloak around himself and all around him. Initially, it was um, it's actually quite a moving moment where he's tired. He's just desperately tired and he's hungry and he's thirsty. And the first thing God does is provide those physical needs, enables him to rest, provides him with food and water. And then as he continues, there's a great uh, storm that blows past. There's an earthquake and a fire, but God wasn't in either of those powerful moments. And after the fire, a still, small voice where God speaks. And Elijah comes to the mouth of the cave and begins to hear that God is present in the midst of it. Now the message that Elijah received in that moment where he was just spent and fearful and just running for his survival was to say, you're not alone. He actually said that I've actually, there's been 6,000 people, faithful Israelites, who have also kept the faith. You are not alone. That's actually not a bad message for us to hear on those occasions when we can feel desperately alone and isolated. And God says, no, you're not alone. You are in good company. And of course, as the narrative continues, God also sends him Elisha, a servant, to come and work with him and to assist him. There's still work to be done. Never too sure at St Matthew's Kensington as to who will be in church on the long weekend in October over the years. Days gone by, I was often very tempted to have a service down at Victor Harbour and probably get almost as many people turning up down there. I was going to praise the remnant who turned up this long weekend in October, but it's more than a remnant. We're in good company. I am encouraged to know that I'm not alone. Fiona and I came up. I knew it would be a handful. Charles had said he'd be here and a few others. Isn't it good sometimes to realise that we are in company? More so than we realise. Now the point of these episodes is not just to go through the whole episode with Elijah, but just to recognise that God sees, hears, responds, is present in those moments. The second passage has a similar one in the New Testament. This is a whole period, um, centuries later. And initially, Paul had been in Athens, the centre of the great um, philosophical schools of the day, the Stoics, the Epicureans. They all walked around. They had serious conversations. So much so that some of the, uh, the, the women of Athens said that, for goodness sake, we're running the households. We're managing the small businesses that run out of our households while the men are off solving the world's problems in the forums forever. Does anything change? Paul was so speaking in Athens and it was a uh, dramatic moment in which he spoke about their faith. He said, I see you, you are very religious. You have a, a, basically a, um, a little um, temple or a shrine for any and every god you can imagine. There's even one for the god that you don't understand, you don't know, the unknown god. He says, well, let me tell you about the one god that's unknown because I know this god. And he tells them, about Jesus and about the resurrection and 
They said, we want to hear more. So Paul was invited to speak to the, uh, the Are- Areopagus. Now, the Areopagus is a small amount of uh, section outcrop next to the Acropolis, but the, that's the sort of the, the image that names it rather than, um, like we might say, Mount Lofty. But you can talk about a broader thing that's identified with it. The council was very hard to get into. In fact, you'd almost, almost suggest that it's the equivalent of, I don't know, the Adelaide Club or something like that. Um, you know, you, you can't just buy your way into it. It's a very elite group. And this council of those who have the, the pedigree, they have the education, the training, uh, you didn't get the invitations lightly to come and speak to them. But Paul was invited and he spoke to them and he, for quite a while, quoted their prophets back to them, their poets. And it's a really engaging um, example in uh, apologetics of how to identify points of common ground, points of agreement, and then introducing some new elements into that mix. But at the end of it, it actually wasn't a great, fruitful, the Areopagus all turned. One did, um, and uh, a handful of others came to faith, one woman who was obviously socially well-placed. But Paul moved on from Athens and didn't leave a church, just a handful of, of followers. And it seems as though this is all getting pretty tiring and pretty hard until Paul came to Corinth, about 80 kilometres away from Athens, a couple of days' journey. And uh, just some of the backstory, Paul was actually by himself in Athens. He was waiting for his companions to come and join him. They were still up in Macedonia. And he still travels by over to um, Corinth and enters there. And he finds a, a part of the Jewish community, a significant Jewish community. And he comes across um, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. Aquila... Um, is and Priscilla, his wife, have cut, have come from Rome. Um, they fled because Claudius was very suspicious of some of the battles, internal battles that were occurring in Rome. Banned all the the Jews from Rome, so they came out and settled in Corinth. And Paul, being a, a fellow, a leather worker, working alongside them, built up a relationship with them, and spoke in the synagogues. And uh, after a while, the um, while the synagogue leader and his family came to faith, others were pushing him out. And this had been very much what had occurred a number of other times. It happened in Thessaloniki and other, other places. So we need to remember that at this moment, Paul is actually pretty tired. As he enters Corinth, it was a, uh, a Greek city that had been thoroughly Romanized. It had, uh, had a long pedigree, but the Romans came in and sort of rebuilt it along Roman lines. And this is a reconstruction of what it would look like to walk off Harbour Street through these great um, gates, uh, which still exist, um, and into the Forum, the Roman Forum. And Paul didn't know anyone when he entered there until he began to build these relationships. It's in that context that we need to recognise that Paul had been on amazing journey something like 16,000 kilometres that he'd walked in his journeys, as well as the other trips. And uh, elsewhere, when he writes to the Corinthians a bit later, he describes what his own 
CV looks like. He's supposed to be boasting of all the, you know, all his achievements and his CV. He said, "Well, this is on my, this is my CV. What my life has been like as an apostle. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me thirty-nine lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent the whole night and a day adrift at sea." I've travelled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I've faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I've faced danger in the cities and in the deserts and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long and enduring many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. Paul was getting old at this stage. And when you get beaten with the 39 lashes, when you get beaten with rods, your body just doesn't just bounce back. You carry those scars for life. Add to that the journeys, the hardships, the shipwrecks. Paul wasn't a strong, robust figure. And at this stage, it seems as though once he's beginning to get the pushback again in Corinth, that he was getting to the point in which he's saying, enough. And God spoke to him in a dream. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Really interesting, when I first read that many years ago, it really struck me. I never associated Paul with being afraid. Paul seemed so robust, so confident, so strong. But here it's clear that God is speaking to a time when Paul was feeling fearful, as though it's just becoming too hard and he wants to stop speaking. Keep on speaking, do not be a silent, for I am with you. And no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. And so Paul stayed for a year and a half and one of the great churches of the first Christian movement was established. Now we have in those two episodes, Elijah in the Old Testament, Paul in the New Testament, some extreme examples of what those oscillations can be. The the exhilaration in the moments of triumph over the prophets of Baal, over the Areopagus and a great invitation to be able to hold his own in this discussion with the great philosophers of the day and both of them crashing down afterwards and feeling very low. It's actually quite a common experience. Many of the great Christian leaders of church history are identified as being depressive personalities. We think about Spurgeon. We think about Luther. Often we're plagued by times of what we would describe as the black dog, times of depression, and needed others around them to to see them through those moments. Paul actually says to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians, actually, that's the way it needs to be. If I was a strong, impressive, powerful leader and figure like some of the others that he's been compared to, then you might think it's just my ability, my charisma. He says, well, I ain't got charisma. I'm old, I'm tired, I'm not an impressive speaker. So you have to fall back on the message that I'm bringing you. 
But the message is about a God who is much stronger than me. We need to be in that space to know our vulnerabilities, to know that without God, life is bleak. Now those are the extremes. Somewhere in that mix, I think we can all identify ourselves in that roller coaster. Those moments when faith and we gather together to sing hymns and we join each other's in company and we think, yes, hopefully. You know, my desire is that each Sunday as we gather or Wednesday in our Wednesday congregation, we leave just feeling encouraged in our faith of a stronger sense of, of uh, yes, where our faith is well-placed. But we all know we face, whether it's Monday morning or whatever it is that comes and some of those realities challenge us. The thing is the Bible doesn't say we're going to take you out of those moments. But God says I'll ride with you through those moments. Now this isn't just a a sermon about the realities of of, um, burnout and of depression and about things that are very much part of our world and our own experience. And that's a massive topic in its own right and one in which there's so many different uh, dimensions and things that we can touch. I don't presume for a moment to give anything like a, an easy or glib answer to it. But what I will give you is a foundation in the midst of all the seasons and moods of our life. God is present. Even in those moments when we're looking in the thunder and the lightning and the big picture, God lets us do that listening. Then He says, Okay, have you finished? Now listen to this whisper. Just listen to that voice. I'm there. And you can trust me, (laughs) despite what the stands say. Do not be afraid. I will be with you, is the covenant promise that God makes to his people. It's what is conveyed when we have the Lord's Supper. God says, you are my people. I am your God. I'm there for you. Whatever experience you have, you are not alone. Not only is God present, but you are in the company of God's people. So as we go through those times of seeking renewal and revival, it is listening to those whispers. It is listening to those moments in which God just nudges us, whether it's the smallest thing, even a little bird or a butterfly that we suddenly recognise, something we've overlooked in the beauty of the world in which we find ourselves, whatever it may be. One of the things I love about Scripture that has all the dramatic stories and the great moments and way in which God worked in and through a whole range of people, male and female, Jew and Gentile, slave or free, they're all part of God's work. But no less is God intimate and personal. God knows when we need sleep, and food, and a drink. In fact, one of the most moving verses in the Bible for me, when those are in tears, happens a number of times, but certainly in the book of Revelation, and it says this powerful God of creation reaches down and just wipes the tear under our eye. I know what it's like to do that with a grandchild. God is there to wipe the tears under our eyes and says, I'll never leave you. 
So as we seek renewal and revival, let us trust those quieter moments. Trust in those seasons where it is hard work and we don't necessarily have a dramatic sense of God's presence. But recognise that God is there nonetheless. And that makes all the difference in the world. Amen.